few hours before his death, our Lord in the upper room said these words to his followers then and to us now. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Lord, there are times we do not know where you're going, but we trust you. And like Thomas of old, we ask and then we follow. The answer is you, the Lord, the way, the truth, and the life. May we join hands and hearts together as we pray. Our Father, you know all the collection of questions that we bring into this service today, all the mixed emotions we have, all the raging kind of ambivalence we have, all the uncertainty, as well as all of the triumph and victory and good things that have happened to us. Dear God, at moments such as this, we are just reminded of how much life is a mixture. What a paradox it is so often. We thank you that the resolution of that paradox is in you, the person, not just in a prescription or a philosophy or in an idea, but personified in you totally and completely. And so, Father, help us in this worship service as in life to focus upon you, our Lord, our Savior, the way, the truth, and the life. And we come to pray to you together now as you taught your disciples to pray long ago, saying, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I pray that in a very special way that God would use finite words from lips of clay uh, to be truly the word of God to your heart and your life today. That what is said will be God's word to you and to me and to us today. When I was in Baylor a good long while ago, we used to have on Friday night what we call missions. Some of you who may have been there in those days will remember. Uh, all of us who were concerned in Christian work of some kind, or not necessarily those of us who were in vocational Christian work, just a lot of the active Christians on the campus, uh, would go to various missions around town, most of them in deprived, uh, depressed areas economically. And we would work with children there. We would have the equivalent of a vacation Bible school. 
And uh, we would all go to these various different missions as teams, and then we'd all come back to the Union Building, the big drawing room in the Union Building. We'd sit around on the floor and sing choruses and share testimonies out of what had happened that night in some of the missions. And that was a very important part of our campus life in those days. And uh, I remember one night specifically when we'd come back and we were sharing testimonies, and my good friend and now a member of our church, Howard Butt, had gone with a group over to the Ninth Street Mission where Jack Robinson, also a close friend of ours, was pastor. Little church over there on Ninth Street, seated about 50 or 75 folks. And uh, we'd go to these missions and have a Bible uh, memory time. We'd sing choruses and play games and the kind of thing you do with children, and we had the Bible memory uh, contest, sort of. We'd have all the names of the kids up there on a, on a bulletin board type thing, and a star there, and if they memorized the scripture, well, they got a star by their name. Well, the scripture for that night is the scripture from the 14th chapter of John, from which I read a moment ago, and Jesus says to his disciples, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. He knew he was going to the cross to die. He had told them that. Their hearts were troubled and distressed. And he said, look, I'm not going to leave you alone. Another translation says, I will not leave you orphans. I will not leave you desolate. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Well, this little kid over there at the mission couldn't get it right. So they'd line up there, and the one kid right after the other would come up there and say, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you star beside his name. Next kid, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Star beside his name. This little boy came up there and he said, I will not leave you comfortable. I will come to you. They said, go back to the end of the line. So he'd turn around and go back to the end of the line and say, get it right. And they'd coach him along the way. Two or three times he'd come up there and he said, I will not leave you comfortable. I will come to you. Well, as we've laughed about that and talked about that, you know something about that? He, that was right. That's exactly right. He will not leave us comfortable nor comfortless. It was said of Jesus during his ministry, he stirreth up the people, he does. Not to punish, but to make sensitive to the world around them and to what God wants to do within them. He will not leave us comfortable. As someone has said, he will comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And he does that. And he later enunciates that in just an hour or so or less later in the 16th chapter, the same night, now on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, the continuation of this night before his crucifixion, he says this to them, recorded in the 16th chapter of John, 33rd verse. Listen. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. Jesus said, you're going to have trouble. I had it, you're going to have it. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. One translation, take courage, another translation. I have overcome the world. Jesus has promised us both trouble and triumph. 
He is saying to us that being a follower of his does not grant us some sort of immunity from trouble. In fact, being a serious follower of Jesus will oftentimes introduce you into troubles you never knew before. It did the early disciples, and it has Christians across the centuries, and it will us. Being a Christian is not some giant insurance policy against troubles. And every now and then we hear Pollyanna preachers saying that if only you trust God enough, you'll never have a headache or a hangnail. They missed what Jesus had to say, and they missed it badly to the detriment of the people who take it and hear it and believe it. He said, you're going to have trouble. But I have overcome the trouble. I have overcome the world. He's saying that in this life, we have both tribulation and trouble. To be sure, it's a paradox, as there are many in the Scripture. But it is a paradox that is resolved through a person, and that person is Jesus Christ himself. We have had a lot of earthquakes in America this week. They've not all been in California. Had a tragic one there. But there may have been an earthquake in your heart this week, or your home, or your business, or your health. There's been an earthquake in the heart of this church. Everything gotten shaken up. We're asking questions and we're wondering and we're listening. Earthquakes. Yesterday, in this place of worship, I conducted a memorial service for Chris Schumacher, 24-year-old junior at Baylor University who was brutally, senselessly, tragically shot and killed on a parking lot at the campus. His brother was with him, Jay, and stood there and watched his brother die. We had that service, a memorial here in this room yesterday. Chris was 24 years old. Tomorrow morning in this room at 11 o'clock, we will have a service for Joe Ince, who, as you know very well by now, was brutally and senselessly, violently killed at 38 years of age. That's tomorrow. Today, we come into this place of worship to remember and to celebrate the death and resurrection of a 33-year-old man who never did anything wrong, who was the epitome of perfection and of love and whose death was the classic injustice and insanity of all time. But I am here to say to myself and to you that were it not for his death and his crucifixion, 
which we remember and celebrate today and exult in his resurrection. Without that, I have no word for what happened yesterday in this room. Without what Christ did on this resurrection day observance 2,000 years ago, without that, I've got no word for tomorrow. In fact, I don't have any word for anybody's yesterdays or anybody's tomorrows. If you miss the now and the today and the reality of his death and of his resurrection and of his promise to take our troubles as he took his own, to took our trials as he took his own, to take our tribulations and temptations as he took his own and turn them into triumph for us. Be of good cheer. I have overcome. Everything that will come into your life, I've overcome. I avoided no problem, escaped no temptation, glossed over any trouble. I faced them all and tasted them all and took them all and went to a cross and died. The symbol of our faith is a cross. But it's an empty cross. Therein is our faith and hope that he will take our trials, our troubles, our temptations and do with them as he has promised. Turn them into triumph in our hearts and in our lives. <coughs> troubles come. Jesus promised it. I said a moment ago, there's no immunity against troubles. They come. They come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, as you know. And when they come, as the troubles came, I precipitated the memorial service yesterday and the one tomorrow. Those events create an earthquake in our hearts and in our lives, for we come to this moment filled with an ambivalent kind of feeling, for there is a mysterious mixture in each one of us right now of anger and sorrow. Anger. Angry at a society that tolerates such insane behavior. Anger at people who leaving God out of their lives do horrible things to innocent people. Anger at a system that seems to ignore tragedies that go on around us, minimizing the seriousness of crime, that ignore the peril of guns and all of those things. But deeper than that and more basic than that, ignore the fact that man without God becomes not just an animal, but something worse than an animal. It can become a beast devil. And the primary message the world must hear is the primary message you and I and we are committed to.
concerned with all of the other social implications and solutions and applications. At the heart of the need in America today is the soul of our renewed commitment to a living God and to the embodiment of his life and his love and his principles and practices into our lives and in our practices and into our principles. Yes, we're angry. Jesus got angry. You read it in the New Testament. He was angry. He was angry when men were more concerned about rules and regulations than the welfare of people. He was angry and said, when you hurt some little one, it would be better that there were a millstone hanged about your neck and you were thrown in the depths of the sea. He was angry. But it was never a destructive anger. It was, as William James once said, much would I give for a constructive passion of some sort. Jesus' anger was a constructive passion. He turned that frustration and he turned that upset spirit into a positive message of hope and redemption and salvation for the world. God have mercy on a church or on a person or a society that is not upset when injustice is done. When innocents are hurt. When violence is perpetrated and often unpunished. But listen, if you nurture that anger in your heart, if you feed that anger, if you cuddle that anger, it will destroy your life. God has come and does come through the metamorphosis of the Holy Spirit and he will take that anger and turn it into action that will send you out to make a difference in the world and not just sit and complain and criticize but get your hands on the problem and do something about it. He did and so will we. So will we. Paul says, be angry. Ephesians 4, 26. Be angry. But sin not. Isn't that, a, isn't that an interesting statement? Be angry. But sin not. And don't let the sun go down on your anger, he said. When something upsets you and threatens you, don't feed it. Don't nurture it. Let it be turned into action in your life. Don't just get angry. Get active. Translate that frustration into service and help to other people to help prevent the very thing that has helped anger you or contributed to your anger. History's been changed because people got angry. Wilberforce got angry at the slave trade. Young member of parliament, he got angry at the slave trade and spent his life abolishing it. Wilberforce got angry at the working conditions imposed upon women and children in England and he, bit, he spent his life contributing to the institution of laws that would make it different, the working conditions in England. Abraham Lincoln once stood and watched some slaves that had escaped from the South being taken back to the South in shackles. And Abraham Lincoln said, if ever I have the chance to hit that, I'm going to hit it hard. hit it hard and signed that Emancipation Proclamation and made a difference in the world. Don't just get angry. 
Get active. Translate that frustration into faithful service to the cause of Christ and to the welfare of mankind and make a difference in the world. Be more than a complainer and a critic. Be a contributor. Be involved. But we also feel a deep sense of sorrow for family, for friends, for ourselves. And my Jesus was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. He understands that. Although it's interesting, the scripture only tells us a couple of times that Jesus wept. That obviously was not the main characteristic of his life. It was so unusual that they made a note of it at the tomb of Lazarus. It says Jesus wept. And then over the city of Jerusalem, it says he wept over the city of Jerusalem. My soul, if he wept over the city of Jerusalem, what must he do over the city of San Antonio? He said, I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't do it. My friend, we're here as the people of God to help see that we do it. That's the only reason for our existence as a church, not just to entertain ourselves and to strengthen our own faith, but to make a difference in the world, to make a difference in our community. Jesus felt sorrow, but he took that sorrow like he took his anger and he turned it into service. You and I can do the same. You remember the story in the 24th chapter of Luke when these two men following the crucifixion, unnamed men, so they're really a representative of all of us. These two fellows had had so much hope in Jesus and they thought he was going to just be everything to them. And, and they'd seen him crucified and knew he was dead. And they were headed back downhill away from Jerusalem, discouraged and disconsolate and headed downhill in the wrong direction. My, what a description of some people's lives that is. Going downhill without hope in the wrong direction. And Jesus, rather incognito, joined them. They didn't know who he was. And he came along and said, what's the trouble, fellas? In so many words. He said, where have you been? Don't you know about all the things that have been happening? I want you to notice how gentle Jesus was. He didn't blame them. He didn't preach to them. He didn't judge them. He just tenderly asked them some questions. What's going on? Where have you been? Well, there was this man crucified. And we had trusted it was, it should have been he who would have redeemed Israel. We, we felt he was the Savior. He says, oh, is that so? And so he kept talking, and he talked the scripture a little bit, and after a while, their eyes were opened, and they saw him, knew who he was. And they hit the ground running. They'd gone downhill to Emmaus. And that very night, dangerous and as difficult as it was, they started back up that hill to Jerusalem to tell the good news. He had taken our troubles. He has taken our sorrows. And he has turned them into victory. And that's what happened to the early church. I want you to look at what happened to that early church. Within a few hours after the resurrection of Jesus and the instigation of the church and the preaching of Peter at Pentecost, one of their number, one of the leaders in that young church named Stephen, a man with great ability, obviously intelligent, erudite, read his sermon in the book of Acts, how impressive it is, how intelligent it is. And they took him out, they dragged him out to the gates of the city and they stoned him to death. Preached one sermon, lived only as a Christian for a few months at the most and here he is dead. What good can come out of that? 
Well, God can take the death of a Stephen and out of it bring the conversion of a Paul, which he did for Saul was standing there watching that, directing that, approving that, even instigating that. And his life was changed. And as a result, the whole gospel of the Son of God was proclaimed to parts of the world that would never have been touched had Stephen not died. We don't understand the things that God is doing. And if he were to try to explain everything to us, we still wouldn't understand it. We're intellectually incapable of understanding everything God is doing. But you can be certain of one thing, my friend. He is in charge. He will have the final word. And he will take the worst that the world can give and turn it into the source of salvation for all mankind. And that's what he did on the cross and in the resurrection. Oh, not long after that, Jesus' half-brother James, pastor of the church there in Jerusalem. Read about it in the 12th chapter of the book of Acts. Herod, horrible individual that he was, Herod the king, had James, the brother of John, the brother of John, put to death with a sword, cut his head off. What's going to happen to the church? Well, keep reading. One of the problems we have is we stop reading before God stops writing. We stop listening before God stops speaking. But the word, 24th verse, 12th chapter, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. He took these horrible events and used them by the presence of his spirit as a catalytic agent for moving the gospel out to the ends of the earth. So I want to say a word about those disciples and a quick word of conclusion here in a moment. Have you noticed that all the problems that came into the life of that early church and those early Christians did not shatter their faith, but rather motivated them to scatter their faith? Notice that those early Christians didn't go into mourning. They wept when they buried Stephen, but they didn't stay there. They didn't go into mourning. They went out to the world. They went out to evangelize the whole world. That's what God wants to do with our problems. Turn them into spiritual catalytic agents that will make us more faithful and effective witnesses for him in this world. And those early disciples at Pentecost were so excited, so elated, so confident of life beyond this life that those who heard them preach were not impressed with how sad they were, but how glad they were. So glad they were, they were accused of being drunk. And these men who had been fearful and terrified of their own death suddenly became bold as lions and went out to proclaim the gospel. And every one of them, except John, was martyred because of their faith and the word of God multiplied. And listen to me, you and I are here today because they took their troubles and let God turn them into triumphs. And the fate of the next generation is up to us today. And how we will deal with the troubles and tribulations and difficulties that come into our life and whether or not we'll let the Spirit of God take them and make them into something that will make the world ultimately better for the glory of God. 
Stephen was about five or six, seven, something like that, and he'd been wanting to go up to the Ice House, which was the forerunner of what we now call convenience stores. He'd been wanting to go up there on his own by himself. We'd postponed it, delayed it, tried to keep him doing it. We didn't want him walking up there about two or three blocks. It wasn't so far away. It was that he had to cross a couple of streets, including North New Braunfels, and by himself. He wanted to do it. And we figured, well, okay, it's time for him to do it. So we let him go. And we nervously waited there at the house for Steve to come back. He was a little later than we had hoped, and so we'd gotten anxious. But he came in, and his eyes, normally big, were much bigger than usual. And I could tell something had happened. Martha and I looked at him and said, Steve, how was it? He said, do you, do you know that over there on Oak Leaf, there is a big dog named Thor, <laughs> a Great Dane? I said, yes, I know that Thor, the Great Dane, lives over there. And he said... He's out. <laughs> and he said he came out to see me when I was walking along. And he said, I knew that if I ran, it might excite him and he might chase me. So I just walked along and I just prayed. <laughs> and prayed. And we said, wonderful. He said, I prayed, went to the store, and came back home. And I said, well, Stephen, it's wonderful how God answers prayer. He took care of Thor. And then Steve said, marvelous statement I will never forget. He said, you know, if Jesus hadn't risen up from the grave, we'd be scared all the time, wouldn't we? Terrible English, great theology. And you have to have one, half theology. Rosen up from the grave, without that, we are of all men most miserable. And I would have no word for yesterday nor no word for tomorrow. But Christ is risen from the dead and is the first fruits of them that sleep. He said, we will overcome. I want to read you next, almost the last words of the New Testament, the next to the last chapter of the Bible, 21st chapter of the book of the Revelation. Listen. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is among men. He's with us. And he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. And he who overcomes shall inherit these things, 
and I will be his God, and he will be my son. I do not know what it may be in your life that you need to overcome today, but he will give you the power to do it. He said that, promised that, does that. You may need to overcome the timidity to walk down this aisle to make a public profession of faith as your Savior, in Christ as your Savior. Many did this morning. It was an amazing service earlier, miracle after miracle. He'll do the same thing in your life. I don't know whether it's the obstacle, the hindrance of procrastination you need to overcome. You've been putting it off. He who overcomes shall inherit these things. Give God your past and your future by giving him your now. And you shall overcome and be as Jesus promised, more than conqueror. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. I want you to look into your own heart. No one can look there but you and God. And look there with the help of God and see what it is that needs to be done in your life. What he would have you become in your own spirit and heart. And then what he would have you do in this world to make it better because Jesus is your Lord and your Savior. You want to do that which will bring honor and peace to him. So whatever it is he's leading you to overcome, I urge you to do that now. Lord, be as real in this place, this moment, as you were in that upper room. And help us hear what you said to them and to us. That in this world we're going to have trouble. But be of good cheer. We trust you the overcomer. Lord, speak to our hearts. We ask for Jesus' sake.